I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So I am just truly thrilled to be doing this event tonight with Jeremy, who... Straight back at you. It's a great honour to be here, and thank you. Compliments. Compliments. Sorry, sorry. Um, Not very good at those. (laughs) You're going to get loads. Jeremy is a person of the most sort of consummate generosity and good taste, and people have been longing for this book for a, for a very long time and I think that can be quite an alarming situation because as anticipation grows expectations grow and speaking for myself and I think speaking for a lot of other people the expectations were absolutely met it's it's a book of serious depth real heart it is beautiful exquisite rigorous full of ideas bounding along gaily it just gives me joy which I think is your essential spirit <laughs> It feels to me like, and I am a person who does not cook at all, an invitation into the kitchen, a place that might be both deeply reassuring and also somewhere where you might carry out all kinds of experiments. So what I wanted to start with really is what I was struck with with the book. It's so deeply grounded in your home kitchen in Dundee. I was expecting much more of a sort of, I'm a restaurant chef, and it, it really <laughs> has this feeling of home. Yeah. So I wanted, to, I wanted you to start by talking to us tonight a little bit about family, your family, what cooking was like in your family home, what your relationship to it was. You're quite right, my darling Olivia. Um, it really was... Um, Lucking out with two parents who cared, I think, really. And Dad loved food. Mum loved to cook it. And she was <laughs> <laughs> rather brilliantly. Well, she was an extraordinary product of an amazing time um, that she'd been born into a jute family in Madras in the early 30s. And, you know, of course, servants did everything. She never touched anything. Um, and in 1938, um, shipped back to... Blighty with her sister and her mother on that those long breaks they used to have, so they didn't go native. Yeah, shudder at the very thought of the whole thing. And um, war broke out, and they stayed in Dundee and never went back. And so after the war, as a young woman, um, there were sort of bizarrely two options open to her. One was to go into private service as a cook, or to go to Athol Crescent in Edinburgh and train as a domestic science teacher. Um, back in the days when we did have these great schools that did this. And that's what she did. And so she broke, um, and there was all sort of mad stuff at home. Granny was an inveterate gambler and gambled all the money away. Grandpa came back, drowning in whiskey. I knew this um, was good Came place. down the steps of the boat to say to find his wife and, you know, tattered stockings and moth-eaten furs. And went, well, where's the money? And she went, oh, I don't know. Just, you know, I lost it on a game of gaming, gaming tables and brought a ferry. And um, he went back up the gantry and onto the boat, and she didn't see him again for 20 years. I suddenly had this very strange life, um, which was a complete, I mean, it was like Frances Hodgson Burnett, little princess kind of thing, mental. Um, and so into domestic science, mum went, and uh, along the way met dad, and they married, and had four kids, and, and instead of staying in a tenement flat in Dundee, they bought a plot of land in a little village called Ochter House, just outside Dundee where four kids could just run riot, we did, amongst our sea of berry fields. Because back then, there was this incredible wealth 
of raspberries grown in the Castle Gallery and the Vale of Strathmore. And it was the berry centre of the whole farm, the, the, the whole country. In fact, it used to have its own train at Cooper, waiting at four o'clock to take that day's pickings down. And so we ran riot in these berry fields, being shouted at by farmers as they chased us with guns, you know, and we just covered in, covered in stuff. Um, and had this madcap childhood. But somehow inside us always was the alarm bell that rang to say, come back for dinner and for lunch. We always knew when food was going on the table because it was always incredibly delicious and we always looked forward to it so much. Even if it was just a big pan of lentil soup and a loaf of bread hot from the oven and a massive dollar great butter. Um, it was incredibly good stuff and we grew up with this. And it's hard thinking back to then when this was odd and it was rare. Folk did not enjoy food or celebrate it the way we did. In fact, it was a dirty secret. You know, I mean, you hid behind this. You didn't talk about food. You just quietly read mm. something and then you might cook it and then whisper in someone's ear, you know, I cooked a buff boogie on that side. Oh, shut him a timbers. You didn't do that, did you? Oh my God, you'll be arrested next. Um, this madcap society made. Um, but emerging at this time, and this would be careering into the 60s, um, Elizabeth David had um, fully um, taken aboard the idea of this little spots of sunshine with her books on Mediterranean food and French country cooking. And Jane Grigson, justly um, and properly uh, inspired by this, followed suit. And that, in turn, inspired Claudia Roden. And in turn, so these books started appearing at home. And mum would sit in the kitchen, you know, me opposite doing my homework and making splodges and doodles and all sorts. While mum sat there with a cigarette in one hand, she was a great smoker, so elegant, dead stylish. And either the vermouth or a coffee in one hand. And we'd always have a book out and a pile of paper and a pen. And we'd go down the window, and her finger, and the paper would turn, and then her finger would stop, and she'd go, that, that's the one. And that's why we would either eat that night or the next night or something. And the, um, this was the atmosphere we grew up in. And it was, we just thought it was perfectly normal, <laughs> of course. You know, um, it wasn't really. And we'd always laugh when we all went to stay with, uh, go and see a friend or stay at a friend's house or something. And mum, I said, mum, not when it was at Mandarin segments. They were the broken ones too. She said, well, I did tell you, dear. Well, <laughs> so there was this madcap thing. And so it was, all, it was always all over the place. And there was books everywhere. And, They were just very wonderful. They opened our eyes to so much and encouraged us in every way imaginable. And it was magic, really. I think, I mean, I, I love all of that. I love the sense, and it sort of runs through the whole book, that cooking is just this ordinary thing, as well as being a spectacular thing. It's very ordinary. But at the same time, you are a trained restaurant chef, and I'm going to now list some of the kitchens <laughs> that you came up in. So Boodles, Alistair Little, Bibendum, the Design Museum, and beloved Quo Vadis. So some really you know, extraordinary restaurants in the history of cooking as well. For me, I eat in them a lot, but the idea of the restaurant kitchen is there's this kind of closed, mysterious world. And I want to know how you, you entered that world. What was the beginning of that like, to transition from the home cook into the professional um, kitchen? I'm the youngest of three boys, and I suppose there's that traditional thing, you have an ear and a spear, and then this thing. What do you do with that thing? <laughs> You know, and the church was Very not... Topical. I know, really? I mean, apropos <laughs> certain incidents of grief. Um, but I think there was a thing of, what do you do with a third boy? And, uh, you know, Dad, Jonathan had gone to art college. My brother had gone to art college, falling in my father's footprints and my grandfather's, yeah. you know, who were illustrators. And, in fact, I was on my way to art college. Because uh, I wasn't... I didn't like school. I didn't, I didn't get on with that world at all. Um, thought that was thick. I wasn't very bright, but I was pretty, you know, I wasn't thick. Um, and the thing with private education is they'll just put you through anyway. Um, and there isn't anyone who really bothers to, and back then in particular, there wasn't anyone that really bothered to stop and ask you what was going on with you. And so no one did that. And so when I came back from a summer holiday with the family um, from France, and there was this big brown envelope. And I was like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, you know. And there's this bedlam going on as mum and dad are unpacking the car and there's four kids going by and stuff going everywhere. And so I opened this envelope and English, B, O, you know, history, C, not too bad, but got it, Justin, French, you know, B. I was like, what the? Wow, amazing. So I hightailed it to mum and went, mum. And she was like, yes, yes, darling, what, what do you want? And I said, I've got my hires. And she went, wow, good, okay. And I well, a bit of enthusiasm would go down a bit here. I was just unpacking four weeks of France out over the back of a car. And I said, does that mean I don't have to go back to school? And she went, nope, yeah, no, absolutely not. And I went, does that mean I get the fees? She went, nope, absolutely not. 
you know, so there were these things called commercial colleges back then. And so I went to commercial college instead of going back to the high school of Dundee. And primarily to sit more exams to, for, and put a portfolio together to go to art college. And to earn some pocket money, uh, very, I went and sought employment at this tiny little beautiful old manor house at the bottom of the road where we lived that had very recently been turned into a small hotel by this entrepreneurial Edinburgh couple who wanted to employ nothing but locals. And we were like, oh, brilliant. So I went in as a waiter, hopeless, dropped everything, gossiped too much. And this will give you some idea of the respect chefs were held in back then. Instead of sacking me, they put me in the kitchen. <laughs> And so there I was, suddenly out of waiter's epaulets and into the tall white hat, the white neckerchief, floor-to-ceiling aprons, and going, what? Um, and these three hulking great chefs took this gawky 16, 17-year-old kid under their wing. And before you bat an island, I'd served an apprenticeship. Something too. And to this day, I don't really know what it was. I really don't. Did you um, just feel very at home? Something, yeah. And unbeknownst to me at this time, simultaneously, because um, it was very unusual for a privately educated middle-class kid of male persuasion, particularly gay, for God's sakes, you know, to go into this ferociously male-dominated uh, environment. And they just very sweetly scooped me up. And um, something took... And what that was, I don't know. But it did feel natural. It did feel right. I liked food a lot. Um, and I became, you know, there's a massive amount of practicality you've got to get used to. That's quite hard. That was quite difficult. Um, but I didn't mind working weekends. I didn't mind working nights. I didn't mind all that stuff at all. And the food was very good. If it wasn't very, it wasn't very progressive or very innovative or interesting. But all that was simmering. And simultaneously, Simon Hopkinson, who's 10 years older, he was doing the same down in... Mm. London and Alistair Little was simmering in the background and Willie Lee. And so when I did come to London, which was the gift of these three guys for me, them, me putting up with them, putting up with me kind of thing, they said, well, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I don't know, I'll carry on. They were hopeless, you know, hopeless boy. And so they <laughs> phoned their old alma mater, who was the head chef of Boodles at this stage. So that's how that transitioned. That's how that happened. So I was put on a 125, sent to London for a two-minute interview. <laughs> and, then, and then back up to King's Cross to get the train back on the return the same day. I mean, bonkers, absolutely bonkers. But that's my family through and through. And with a big letter saying, you have been, you know, employed. And to London I went, you know, with my bag packed. And Boodles, I loved it. It's this incredible, mad world of gold salt and pepper mills and solid silver cutlery and check on for his highness. And a mold. Oh, the pom the pom animals. These Sorry, beautiful the animals. Well, you know, the, <laughs> to correct Olivia Lang is treading on a very thin ice. It's not my area kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I mean the, it was the last word in everything and and very much of this unbelievable realm of privilege. Um, and this place was inhabited by the great and the good of the world, bar two women. Um, no, in fact, no women. And even then, when it was the height of Thatcher's days, um, Thatcher and the Queen were not allowed to be to this place. They had to cross the Economist Plaza to go downstairs through the back door oh to the women's to the women's side, dears. The women's <laughs> side. But this, I'm, I'm mental, absolutely mental. This sort of well, and something you alluded to earlier leads me into my next question, which is. You always get the sense of the restaurant kitchen as this incredibly macho, quite brutal, potentially quite cruel space. And you seem to operate outside that entirely. I mean, you have this ethos of generosity, you're always inviting other people into your kitchen or cooking with other people. How have you evaded that? Or do you just sort of float above it and it exists elsewhere? God, it's a good question. I've, got, I've been I've, thinking about it a lot. You're very, very, well, very astute. And it's an incredible thing because I don't know how. But uh, the only thing I've come able to come up with is I seem to be attracted to places where chefs like to cook. And they like their jobs. Yeah. And so the boys I was cooking with in Scotland liked their job. It was a complete antithesis to the training they had as a Scottish brutalised environment. This was in a beautiful house and beautiful grounds, cooking lovely fresh produce. They had a vegetable garden. And this is decades yeah. before any of this, which is now the run of the mill. Well, I'm never going to say it's run of the mill. But it is much more the order of the things these days. And then when I went to Boodles, that was their boss. And this was this very controlled environment. There, would be, there was no brutality. Yes, there was that awful C word, chef, the four-letter <laughs> word. It's mutton, mutton, and sous chef. 
You know, like, and everyone's shouting, you know, like, boss. I mean, it's just it's a rubbish term. Um, and uh, luckily, that was the last and first and last kitchen I've worked in with that vocabulary. And thereafter, I gravitated towards Babendum and Simon Hopkinson yeah. and Alison. In, in this time of this great golden period of enlightenment descended on kitchens, and the green baize yeah. door was pulled down. And out with the old, in with the new, this bright modernity simultaneously as Alice Waters was igniting California yes. with Chez Panisse. And um, similarly in Australia, this was all going off over there. Gay Bilson was doing extraordinary things. And so the, the world was greedy for this. There was a vast appetite being built and fueled. And not only were the chefs greedy and hungry for new ideas, the produce coming in had changed beyond all measure. And Rudy, who's sitting up there, was part of the t- crew who began bringing beans and hams and anchovies and almonds. I know. Who <laughs> is can, that? I can see he's trying to hide. I know. His aunt married the Kaiser. He's got great connections. <laughs> and, this, <laughs> and it sells wonderful beans. This leads me very beautifully to the next question, which is this, we're going to start talking now about the book rather than Jeremy's incredibly <laughs> illustrious past. So the, the supplier is such a central figure in this book. You talk often about relationships with suppliers. You talk with such yes. utter sort of passion and devotion about fresh produce and the difference between chilled strawberries, ghastly, ghastly, and <laughs> real fresh strawberries. So this sounds like such a stupid question. Why does that matter so much? Why does that direct contact to the food itself matter so much? Oh, golly. Um, well, I think in a nutshell, it boils down to a happy kitchen cooks happy food, cooks for happy people, I think. And a happy kitchen makes for a happy environment, makes for happy cooks that cook happy food. And I do think it is literally that simple. A bit prosaic, but it, it, it does work. And really, only as ever as good as your team. No matter, it doesn't matter how talented you are and brilliant. Like me, of course, naturally. <laughs> um, but really, uh, well, there was no fun in plastic bags arriving. And I think yes. you see that when you go shopping in a supermarket and you come back home and you dump these plastic bags down and all this plastic falls out and you put all this plastic in the fridge and where's the smell? Where's the, where's the basil? Where's the oil? Where's the coffee? Where's the bacon? Where's the prosciutto? Where's the cheese? And that's what I'm, I'm, I'm bios, and it was all biosmosis. There was no plan or thought to it. It was just drawn to it, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but I would always buy my cheese at Meals Out Dairy, you know, because just that amazing scene of going in and just seeing these arms going over that counter as they slice off, slip taste, taste after taste for people to try all these different things. And that's just a coffee shop. And I think we're right about it when, you know, the, the Italian delis are bold, when you walked in. And your senses were on, your hair stood up on end with the smell of, you know, of charcuterie and cheese and olive oil and tomatoes and basil and coffee and all sorts of things going on. And I've always loved the sound of coffee machines grinding. Also, that was dead glamorous and exciting. And I think these things matter. And I think there is a great theater to food. That is just, um, it's incumbent on us to protect it and encourage it and to grow it. And I get very annoyed and upset with newspapers, you know, when you phone up and ask, oh, what's new this year? What's new this season? I'm like, beetroot, plums, what's your problem? There's only going to be another batch of apples in August. I mean, what do you think? I know. <laughs> you know, you're going to turn them square this time, you know. And so there's this lovely thing of being, you know, having reached a very grand age of being able to very sweetly and kindly and politely dismiss this nonsense and say, no, it's autumn's here, isn't it great? Um, And with that comes Mm. all the new produce. And, you know, it is a wonderful thing when a producer and a supplier come in with their bounty and you just go, that, nothing informs a menu and a cook quite like that, I think. And it's the best fun. And of course, you get far too enthusiastic like me and buy everything. And then you're like, oh, all right, well, put your money where your mouth is. Got to cook all this now. And then the fun begins. <laughs> That's a perfect answer. Let's turn to the process of actually going from being a chef in a kitchen to moving to somebody who is writing a book. Yes. Which was a process. So, what was it like to sit down and start writing? And also, what relationship did that have to the cookery writers that you've loved? And I know you've talked about this with David, you've talked about Jane Gregson, and we've talked about lots more. How much were you thinking about those people as you were doing it? Um, constantly, because, I mean, we all stand on the shoulders of the great and those that went before us. And for, for a long time, I'd felt, oh, it's all been written, it's all been done. Simon's written everything, and Alistair's written everything. And then you look behind them and you're like, 
oh my God, they've all written everything. <laughs> you know, and this goes back centuries. You're like, wow, I mean, what new, what new is there? And there? But there's a simple truth that there's always a new generation. And there's always a new thought, and there's always a new, you know, and you can give 10 cooks the same book, same ingredients, the same recipe, and you will always get 10 different dishes and 10 variations. And I always found that endlessly fascinating. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I will forever hold dear was when Roly Lee jumped ship from The Guardian to go to The Telegraph. This is going back a long time ago and predates even darling Lizzie, one of the most distinguished agents in the country. I lucked out. I got a column in The Guardian. Oh, my God. Um, and out, out of nowhere, it was a oh, bolt that's out. That's because Roly Mood. And Matthew Fort gave me a phone call one day and I was so stunned. He just said, are you there? And I went, trying to be. I'm just digest. I'm processing this, processing this. I'm digesting this and digesting this. And he said, would, would you like to do this? I went, of course. I said, I've got no credentials for writing whatsoever. And he went, that's what's perfect about you. You come with no baggage. And I went, oh. <laughs> and that's a compliment? <laughs> wow, OK. Um, and so started this crazy thing. And that was the one thing after many years writing for newspapers and magazines and being invited to write about a, uh, oh, a cake or a recipe or a column of something. Um, there was a long time doing this, um, many, many years. And I'm sort of almost competing with Alexander Chancellor, the amount of times I got sacked and reinstated to the Guardian <laughs> and in some form whatsoever. But they stood me in incredible stead. I have to say. And he took the my written words and he fashioned them into these extraordinary columns in the last great days, the great broadsheets, which mm -hmm. was an astonishing honour and a time I look back to with um, great sadness because I think when th those food pages were seminal. Yeah. And I think those food pages in The Guardian and The Observer and The Times and The Telegraph and all those great broadsheets back then were, and The Independent and Emily Green uh, were jaw-dropping. And informed, informative, hilarious, brilliant, scathing. Um, they did it all. And they were fantastic at it. And to be counted among that number was the greatest honour, which brilliantly, somehow weirdly, didn't turn this Dundonian said, too much, that is, too much. <laughs> um, but it did, in time, lead to, um, you know, I rubbed shoulders with so many great journalists, a lot of whom became great friends. And we sat at table, and at one that table, Eventually, Louise Haynes, publisher of said book, um, sat down and we became great pals and met all the time. And we went chasing around town, eating everywhere and talking. And come a time, finally, Louise said, oh, come on, put your money where your mouth is, write it. Go on, put it down on paper. And somehow the stars had aligned for opening a journal and opening a page on the machine, um, putting that first tap down. Hello, world. <laughs> um, and Anna began, and there's a brilliant interview with Akira Kurosawa on the subject of making films. And he says that the most painful, brilliant thing about making films is writing a great script. And to write, you have to get over that awful, painful hurdle of putting pen on paper and beginning to write. And he said, this is the advice I give every young filmmaker who comes to me and asks, how do you make these extraordinary films? And his response is, and they're all waited here of camera work and directorial genius, he went, writing. And mm -hmm. th I saw, I can't remember how old I was when I saw this interview, but it blew me away and quite shattered me and thinking, mm -hmm. that's incredible. And so indeed, it was the simple act of just writing and some of this, flowed like lava, and it just off, I mean, it just went. And sometimes he sat there looking at an inventive page, going, oh, God, this is never going to happen. Um, and everything in between is a remarkable adventure. Sounds just like writing. <laughs> just like writing. It's a small job. Um, and was the alphabet conceit there from the beginning? Which, actually, I didn't notice for ages, and I was thinking, this is amazing. It keeps whipping from pudding to savoury and back again. And I thought, oh, hang on. It's actually just alphabetical. Yeah. It's such a beautiful way of travelling through food because you don't feel like you're stuck in this sort of familiar rut. It feels constantly fresh and surprising. Oh, thank you. Well, we just thought this, it wasn't a menu, that's for sure. It's more a journey. And um, the stuff, originally it wasn't an A to Z. Lots of lovely things based, on, of course, as all, a lot of great books are, on the arbitrary form of Jane Rickson's Good Things, which is yeah. a book I absolutely adore and aspire to dramatically. And simultaneously, Julia Child's Kitchen, um, similar. I mean, she wrote three pages on the Caesar salad. She's incredible. 
um, and amazing and awe-inspiring and, and deeply um, profound and wonderful and funny. That's why I always liked it. But I, that's why I loved like, Julia Child and Jane Grigson. They're funny. And they'll bring wit and humor and, as well as great style and amazing form into their writing. And great stories. Um, and so that kind of bucked me up a bit, I suppose, and led this forward. Um, and sometimes it was a real struggle, as such, indeed, it was that finally we said, would you like some help? And I'm like, yes, please. I'd love some help. I don't know what I'm doing. It's too big. And it keeps growing. It's getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> well, it seems to be this little tiny eccentric madcap British book, and it's not a great big madcap British book. Um, and so enter my realm, uh, the great Callan Hart, um, who had edited me a lot at the Telegraph when I'd submitted pieces from them now and again. Um, and also, she's a great pal. And she's a brilliant editor. And she gave me the great gift. And she said, just write. Just keep writing. I'll, I'll work it. What I didn't expect was it to be return by return. Then I was I'm going banging back in the response. I was like, oh, well, Matthew never did that. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever did that, actually. And then, you know, you, you just submit and off it goes. And the next time you see it in print. Um, and so I was really put through my paces. And the learning curve was that. And off we all went on this extraordinary adventure, this great journey um, to fit, you know, fit out this great hulk of a ship. And then when um, we had a manuscript, you know, and christened it and said, right, you're in the water now, you have to fit it out. And so cue Julian Roberts and John Broadley, Elena Heatherwick, you know, this incredible family of folk um, came on board. Um, to take the manuscript and fashion it into this, um, this lovely thing. They've made an incredible job of it. And the cover is, wow, even I've got it. So I bow very deeply um, to all the fates and all the good folk in this world that made this happen. And perhaps that's, this isn't a question at all, it's just an observation, but perhaps that's part of what's so delicious about this book is it has that collaborative ethos. And that's actually quite rare. Most people are like, this is my book, I did it, it's all me. <laughs> and you constantly, I mean, I watch you doing it on Instagram, I hear you doing it in person, that's sort of, I thank this person, I thank this person, this person did this beautiful bit, and this sort of joy in other people's talents, which perhaps is part of what makes you so good at running a restaurant. Anyway, that's just a compliment. Thank um, you. But I'll take it. No. So, so you sort of alluded to this as well. It seems to me, as, as a writer who doesn't really cook, but who loves cookbooks, there are all sorts of things going on in a cookbook. There are instruction manuals, but there mm. also contain elements of memoir. There's all kinds of things going on, perhaps like Claudia Rodin's anthropology. There's, there's a lot that can be happening. How did you build that balance between the essays and the recipes? Because to me, I, I want loads and loads of writing. I'm very happy when there's a lot of text, and I felt like you fulfilled that, that you're talking, you know, expansively about things. Oh, it's a very, it's a, it's a very lovely question. I think the thing that uh, well, became apparent was well, behind you know, just the simplest thing of growing peas and lettuce and then cooking that in butter to make a delicious little pot of something wonderful. That could go in rice or pasta, or on top of a soup, or indeed it's delicious on its own. Um, and I, li I like the things that dishes can go all space. I've, I've never been particularly fond of the rigidity of, you know, this can only go with this, right? Salmarillo can only go on grilled fish in Naples. You know, it's really good. And uh, maybe it's time to let it out the kennel, and it can go elsewhere. Uh, let me go on a little journey. And Salmarillo can adorn many things and enhance it. And I think, in the 80s, for sure, with the explosion of Italian cooking that landed on our shores, on the back of on a profound influence of French cooking for so long, mm. um, suddenly the green bay's door really was pulled down and barriers were being pulled down. Mm. And our delicious green sauce, the salsa verde, was no longer just the property of a pot of boiled meats. It could suddenly adorn anything and did so magnificently mm. and deliciously. And it is to give cooks confidence to feel they can do that. Because why should a cook on Shetland be denied the pleasures of Italy just mm. because they're on a faraway island? And, you know, mm. you may indeed encourage the wrath of John Knox by putting a pot of scotch broth on and then put some anchovies in there. But why not? It's delicious. It's really great. And so long as the food's great, I really don't see what the problem is. So long as you respect absolutely the origins of the dish, you can do... Mm. Anything. It's incredible. And food is a brilliant thing for soothing and healing and bringing folk together. And there's no greater joy than bringing folk to table and sitting them down and then plonking a great big pot of soup and a bowl of gorgeous green gunk and a massive loaf of bread and a big pot of butter. And then off you go. And I think 
to what I tried to do with this book was to break away from this myth that you have to slave and sweat and burst into tears every five seconds in the kitchen, mm. plating painfully six paintings on a plate, and then sending these. Um, the thing is, leave that to the painters, because they can hang that on a wall. This you have to eat, you know, and this is the annoying thing about food. It's quite ephemeral and doesn't last very long, so you better enjoy it. And, you know, that's why, you know, leave that, that other folk can do all that. You can have great fun with this and make something delicious and enjoy it along the way. And that's what I wanted, um, you know, with every page you turned in this book, you were like, oh, I can do that. That's really great. Mm. By doing this, it's, which is exactly how I grew up and how I was shown how food could be. Um, suddenly, you're roasting a whole loin of impeccable pork from an amazing butcher. Thing. And you're not thinking, that's 200 pounds. That's 200 quid. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> you know, so, you know, just bung it in the oven. And, do, and then what you can have waiting are these incredible herbs and spices that you grind. Because um, I'm not a great fan of those charred things that you get off a barbecue. Much better. Anoint and make it fresh and light and bright. Mm. And then douse it in an amazing vinegar. And you don't need the tyranny of a gravy. You've just got this gorgeousness pooling around this joint in the dish. And you just go, God, that's good. And then you dunk in a potato and off you go. And this, this I love. You know, I just think that's great. And I'd like to think the patrons are informed with, enough with this. that This enthusiasm will carry you through it all quite joyfully. Even me, the non-cook. <laughs> I did. I mean, I did feel as I was reading it. Oh, perhaps I could try that, or perhaps that that sounds so delicious. I must try that. So, yeah, yeah, that would be a result. Yeah, it is infectious. Of course, you can come. <laughs> this is a sort of slightly tangential question, but you touch on it in the book a few times that lockdown sort of took over. Lockdown pulled you away from the restaurant into the home, and the book sort of changed tack slightly around lockdown so I wanted to talk about that and also you know the massive effect that lockdown had on the restaurant industry but that this kind of book being birthed out of it so you must have a complicated relationship I'm mentioning to the last oh, two years golly gee um it was quite shocking to see this incredible realm made out of food um that was careering forward brilliantly and changing constantly and suddenly just stopped dead in its tracks overnight. And all these chefs were washed up at sh or alone at home. Robinson Crusoe's, but with the kitchen. Um, mm. But more importantly, what we knew was all the suppliers um, that we knew and loved, and those we didn't, had warehouses full of food that they couldn't even give away to the charities. Um, you know, because you just couldn't, you couldn't move. You couldn't, and charities weren't allowed to accept this food. Yeah. There was this horrible situation. Um, and brilliantly, um, that's what's so astounding about this country is things that would have taken months under normal circumstances to achieve and discuss and plan and bring into being came into being overnight. And mm -hmm. that was unbelievable. And we had this incredible um, truckloads of stuff coming to you. The field kitchens we made in our flats to feed initially for the NHS. And then it became more and more sinister as... Actually, there, was, there were families in dire needs. There were mm. situations where domestic violence was getting out of control and there were shelters going, you know, and folk coming saying, could you cook for these situations? Because, you know, we've got no facility for this and the numbers are overwhelming. And we were, yeah, absolutely. And we oh, could get yeah. on the blow to all our mates and say, look, if, they, if you get stopped, you just say charity. I'm cooking for charity. And so they all managed to come, you know, on their bikes and what have you. And, you know, and amazingly, there were funds for paying cooks to come on their Ubers to come to the flat. And we just cooked our way through it. Um, it was incredible. And along the way, because um, chef's kitchens are notorious, and I will be honest now, normally when you open the fridge, there is a loaf of bread and a pot of mustard and an egg. Okay, because we work crazy hours. We don't have that magical romance of what, keeping a kitchen going. And there's lots of great things. And it's the, the switches are there ready to flick should you want to start cooking when, you're great, when all your pals come round. But mostly, um, it's, you know, we eat at the restaurant, and that's where it all happened. Suddenly, we could, I could, you know, home started suddenly fitting, and I suddenly started morphing into my mum. And I was like, oh my God, yes. there was a cigarette, a coffee, and a book, and, you know, we could cook this and do this. And, the, and then the door would knock, and then this great game started, which is my favourite thing. So, like, you would suddenly see these guys who'd been supplying you at the restaurant standing at your front door with boxes and boxes of, you know, mackerel and herrings and chickpeas and 
cans of olive oil and beans and vegetables like you wouldn't believe. And they all had to be cooked. It was incredible. And so the kitchen was literally turned into this field operation. Um, that by osmosis, when that great adventure concluded, I had three or four days at home cooking. And of course, I had to cook myself. And then being in London fields, there was a whole raft of pals around. So there was just this gorgeousness to it. And it just suddenly felt so right. And I had time on my hand. And there was, shockingly, with that first lockdown, the realization you'll never have time like this again. You know, yeah. when you will just be literally washed up in these shores of a desert island situation. Um, and Carolyn just went, Mm-hmm. And Louise went, mm-hmm. And so, you know, <laughs> when we saw the furies of cooking for all these great things, the typewriter started. And um, but um, um, it happened, uh, which was incredible. So there's a phrase that continues throughout the book, which is a thought. And it's as if you're sort of setting up one dish and then a thought. What if I added this? Or what if it transgressed into this? Mm. It always gets more and more delicious. It's this sort of invitation to increasing deliciousness. So I wondered, how do you feel about the sort of new Puritanism around food, the kind of exclusions and this kind of food is bad and those sort of not just diet-based but purity-based? Oh, golly gee, what a complicated subject. It's yeah. huge. We have really mired ourselves in bonkers mystery. And it's, I think it's like extracting cotton wool from barbed wire to try and make sense of this world we've created. Um, and I do think a reality check needs to be put, the brakes need to be put on while we come out of this curious business that not only did COVID happen, but Brexit happened. We don't know, we don't, nobody understands Brexit. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the effects of this are going to be yet. And our alienating ourselves from our European cousins is ridiculous. The last time we stood in splendid isolation, the Kaiser invaded and we had World War I. It's not a good look, really, and nothing good came off it. So why we've gone into this remains a mystery. And I think it still needs to be seen what the net result of this will be. And mm. will future governments to start to unravel this? Who knows? But it certainly has done unspeakable things to the food chain and the food supply thing, and the costs we're incurring now are eye-watering. Mm. Um, and what is, and that's all, that's nothing we haven't seen before, and that's fine. What is heartbreaking is the little farmer on top of a hill in um, Piemonte, who has one of the world's most celebrated cheese and only makes, you know, 200 of them at any one time. Um, if he ticks the wrong box, those cheeses will stay, in, will stay at the borders for, six months rotting away and by the time that tip that box that box is corrected if it is corrected in time they're fit only for the bin and this happens time and time and time again to bean growers and vegetable suppliers olive oil well olive oil can survive a bit longer with the cheese <laughs> but i mean it's shocking and mm. um, the mismanagement of it and the sheer um, ridiculous speed with which it was pushed through without any consideration whatsoever for this remarkable realm that is the food community mm. um, is devastating. And if one thing illustrated quite the scale of the food community and it's, for God's sake, just what it puts into the exchequer, the yeah. billions it brings every year from John O'Groats to Land's End, um, shook the government to its very foundation. And this ridiculous thing called furlough was created, which has cost us all a fortune. And not many people in fur paid furlough remained. That was the more shocking thing. So this mess um, comes out of it, um, and the unravelling of it with yet another prime minister. Um, <laughs> good luck, love. See what happens. Well, we quite actually I do quite like her because um, um, when she was invited to come to Corvall, she said, "No, no, we can't possibly go there. It's got a shady past." Um, and, uh, <laughs> So she booked instead to Five Hartford Place, which of course is right plonk in the middle of Shepherd's Market, the most notorious red light district in Europe. Hey, how there you go, lovey. Anyway, but anyway, we've got some jars calling came flying to our rescue, and we got a massive spread in the times, and the, our tables flourished in the winter. So we really like her. She's brilliant, spectacular on board. <laughs> there it ends, I have to say, it doesn't go any further now. Um, but it was such a spectacular on goal, I wonder what else she's going to do. I and mean, it's going to, you know, and time will tell. And with these miraculous events now, who the hell knows? It's, um, it's very difficult to have any clear vision of where it's going. And one thing, though, for sure, we will all be sitting at table and eating to discuss it. And so <laughs> a few recipes in there for you to jolly along the day. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I feel like this is a beautiful moment to invite anyone who has a question to ask their question of Jeremy. Um, having spent some time with Alistair Little in the past and my son having been the, the last head chef before he left so Soho, um, how do you feel when you hear news like we've heard recently, which matches that of the Queen, really, almost, really, that oh, Alistair was... is no longer with us? Actually. Yeah. Oh, devastating. Oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> uh, devastating. It was, uh, it was a terrible moment. Um, and too young, too soon. Um, and God, we miss him. I mean, it was bad enough him going to Australia, for God's sake. Um, you know, I don't know what you've done, you know. Um, but there's a scurrilous landlord who comes along and looks at a brilliant business and says, I'm going to hike up your rent. And mm. um, he has a terrible thrombosis. So uh, he's married an Australian wife, so he goes to Australia, um, giving up his fabulous business here because um, he, couldn't, he couldn't make any money from it. That amazing fruit. Um, and then he dies and it is eye-watering, you know, it really is terribly sad. And we've lost a great influence on cooking in this country. And I think it's summed up beautifully by Jonathan Meigs on the back of Keep It Simple when he said, Alistair had that brilliant ability to have that most un-English of things, the thought that good food should be part of daily civilised life. <laughs> And I think it's something he cared for deeply all his life. Um, complex character, but had great heart. Yeah, lovely question. So there's one there, stri stripey top, and then there's one there. Thank you. Is that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. And um, I think what's really contagious about the way you talk about cooking is this sort of effusive rolling boil of experimentation, <laughs> but it strikes me, and you kind of alluded to it, that some of these recipes might have been rather hard work or might have eluded you in their precision at times. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what it felt like to experiment with recipes. And also maybe there were a couple that in their development were particularly humbling or sort of confidence checking, because I think all of us have served something we're not 100% proud of. Oh, yes, and hopefully saying, this is how it should be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the great caveat all the time. Um, God, 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 we've all, we've all had the souffle that sunk. I mean, that's just a given. And, you know, I think there is a terrible tyranny on people. And, and you know, when we've made it for ourselves. It's a big stick to beat our own back with. You know, you open a book, there's the recipe you want to cook. Oh, right, that's how it's going to turn out. Um, and it is the, there's a very talented cook who can make that happen. Mum was like that, I have to say. She was an incredible inspiration. She really could get, she could find, she had great taste in recipes. She always knew which one worked and how it would, and she would discount screens of the rest of the book um, for a few recipes. And Elizabeth David was notoriously difficult uh, to interpret because, I mean, her recipe for book you know, is a paragraph and it's mental. Um, and so I think the journey you go on with a dish is if you love the ingredients and love the idea of what it is, it may take a few trials. And I think this is, um, books need to be more upfront and more honest about this. It's like those recipes say, oh, cook your onions till golden, it'll only take three to four minutes. Like, oh, golly, no, 20 to 24 minutes, but, you know, let's be real about this. Otherwise, you're just leading someone up the garden path and they'll get these little burnt, shriveled, blackened things, you know, little tinge and bitterness to the dish. And so it's a journey, and a lot of these recipes are things I've cooked for many, 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 many years, and honed, and worked on, and come back to. Um, the Santomino no Chocolat is Elizabeth David's original recipe, practically. It's almost untouched, um, apart from trying to make my own macarons, to never, ever got one. <laughs> so it's always Camisa for a box of amaretti. Um, but you know, I, I, I think you go. I think it's embracing the adventure you're going to go on, and sometimes you'll miss the bus, and sometimes the train isn't running. Um, but that's okay. It's fine. And you know, there's always frozen peas. <laughs> they do help. <laughs> there was one there. Um, 
I feel very excited by this because I feel like I've waited a long, long time for this book. I remember seeking you out on the newspapers and I was <laughs> disappointed sometimes when you weren't there in a given week. And, and your recipes were always shrieking out to me to be kind of put together in a book. And, and I waited and I felt myself getting irritated and quite cross that other people were making books Sorry. that you weren't. And I just wondered whether there was a, a pull of the sort of professional kitchen which was in conflict with the amount, enormous amount of work that it takes to sit down and write a book. But did you put it off? Were you, were you sort oh. of delaying or did it... Because it feels to me like it's been a long time coming. <laughs> You're fair. I think Louise Haynes would agree with you as well. Most of you know, and Lizzie will too. Um, I, yes, absolutely, fair cop. It did take a long time to come. And there is a... I approached it wrong in every kind of way of thinking. Terence Conran used to ask me to do a book. You know, I mean, there's been some very distinguished um, comments made along the way. Um, and whatever it was in Louise's voice that time that convinced me, you know, was, I mean, you just don't say no to Fourth Estate anyway. So that was just not, that was a non-safe thing. Um, but there, uh, there was the stars aligning. I, and I do think, harking back to earlier, there was, there was, there, I had to build a confidence that there was something else to say. Um, and I could say it in my voice, and it was about my cooking, and that it could stand up on its own. And it's quite something to stick your head above the parapet, you know, and be counted, um, particularly among such incredible distinguished company as there is in food writing, which is incredible. Um, and so it was a very, I have to say, I'm internally grateful to an amazing crew of folk who just gently encouraged endlessly and always, you know, just keep writing. You know, and finally it all came. And it's shape and form. I mean, it's a big book. I'm not going to deny it. And it was supposed to be a slender volume to begin with, I think. And indeed, it was going to be an A to Z of cooking. And it was just be a little jollies on lovely things. Um, and it's amazing how it grew. And it's amazing the busy scissors didn't get wildly enthusiastic on it. Um, I mean, some <laughs> a lot hit the editing floor. Um, but it was to let the manuscript breathe. I loved that expression and thought that was... I had great charm and gravitas and was exactly where we wanted to go. So thank you. Anybody else got any burning questions <laughs> of the kitchen? Yes. It's a bit of a broad question. Um, do you have any unfulfilled ambitions? Unfulfilled ambition. Oh, gosh, we have so many tomorrows to fill. Uh, I'm sure I can cook some up, um, you know, which I would love. Yes, I mean, endless. There's lots, I mean, there's lots of traveling I need to do. There's, there's markets worldwide I would love to visit. Um, and I'd love to climb the, the Andes to see all these crazy varieties of potatoes, the tens of thousands of them that are up there, um, grown on a mountainside, um, and figure out why these marvels of nature end up in a plastic bag on a supermarket shelf with baking potatoes. Great for baking. Well, really? Okay. Um, you know, the, the world is a marvelous place and it's full of complexities and greatness um, and so much to enjoy and I'd love to see more of that. That's my great ambition for now. Anybody else? Oh, there's one here and there's one there, so two more. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Um, this is kind of a fun imaginary question. Um, in a perfect, perfect world, what do you think food education would look like in this country? What would I think food education would look like? Oh, Should God. Should look like, maybe. Sorry? Should look like, maybe. Should look like. I would give my eye teeth for a central St. Martin's School of Art of Cooking. I think that would just be brilliant <laughs> and fantastic, where kids could just go riotous with food um, and make of it what they wanted. Um, bring down, pull down the green baize door, ask the questions, you know, query this, why is this great? You know, why does this work? You know, why are we stuck with these, this ridiculous vocabulary of vegan and vegetarian and carnivore and meat eaters when it's this is something fundamental to our very being and our very core and something we should enjoy and rejoice in and celebrate and I would love um, a school that would embrace that rather than you know oh, God's sakes I'm not gonna we're not being recorded are we <laughs> do you know what the final dish at the Royal Academy of Culinary Arts was this year year three <laughs> I know I shoot 
<laughs> Tandoori mackerel and a jar of Sharwood's mango chutney. Final year, finishing dish. You know, and so while we've got this going on, we have, we, it's our responsibility to keep pushing through. Um, and indeed, there is talk. Uh, in fact, pre-pandemic days, there was a lot of talk about bringing schools because Belfast has um, created this incredible campus for cooking and hospitality, which is jaw-dropping. Um, and around the world, there are enormous, there are a great many schools that are brilliant. And it's very sad here that really the two great schools that stand up are private and expensive, Ballymaloo and Leeds. Um, and there really should be something because I think one of the things we've seen with kitchens of late is when I was a kid going, I'm a privately educated middle class kid, boy, going into this kitchen was unheard of. But now, God, you have Etonians going in. <laughs> Don't tell Boris, he'll have a heart attack. And um, I think that this is, there is a very strong reason why there is a whole generation that have turned their backs on the professions to go into kitchens um, from very dizzying heights of privilege, um, to start peeling onions and scrubbing potatoes and washing down a section at night. And because they want to do things with their hands, they want to make things, they want to be engaged with food. And through this, deal with the myriad um, issues going on in their heads and their bodies and their beings. And we deal with this on a great deal and love this. And great schools would help enormously to deal with this extraordinary situation. That was a fantastic question. Okay, there is another one there. I do think we've got time because we started a bit late. So Lizzie, and then this one is our last question. You are allowed a question. You're so allowed. Oh, thank you. Um, some so, of the some of the most important um, friendships and relationships of my life have been conducted over one of your smoked dill sandwiches <laughs> because that was where I went to when I wanted to have those conversations. I just wondered. This was a quick fire question, really. Do you have? a particular meal that you choose to make for those important personal conversations or, I don't know, little tete-a-tetes where, you know, it's an important moment or important evening. What do you go to? Go to? Oh, God. All right, quick fire question. Longustines followed by grouse, followed by freshly churned vanilla ice cream and a bowl of raspberries. <laughs> <laughs> and if okay. you have any, I'd be very grateful. I'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I. Oh, what was that? On the right. This is our final question, but you can ask Jeremy questions as you're getting him to sign his beautiful book. It's kind of covered it, to be honest. With you, that last <laughs> Your last meal on earth. Oh, three oh. courses. <laughs> okay, well, I had a smoked deal sandwich to Longestine to Grouse to a bowl of Oh, absolutely perfect. Jeremy, it is such a Thank you, total... Darling. Oh, I'm going to put it on my shirt. Joy, joy, oh. joy. Thank you all. Jeremy Lee. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.